Welcome to the podcast. It's dedicated to making you a faster cyclist. The Ask a Cycling Coach podcast presented by Trainer Road. I'm Coach Jonathan Lee with a different crew for you here this week. We have our, uh, oh, actually, I have a special delivery coming to the office right now. Forgive me. Uh, behind the scenes <laughs> podcast stuff. We have uh, with us, we have I, our community manager here at Trainer, Trainer Road, Ivy Audrain. How you doing, Ivy? Hey, I'm super good. How are you? Great. Good to have you. We have Orange Seal and Specialized uh, Racing's Alex Wild. Hey, everybody. And we also have Cliff Bar Racing and Trainer Roads' Pete Morris. How's it going, guys? A different crew. It's like the it's like the U23 crew. I know that none of us are U23 here, but it feels <laughs> well, like that because <laughs> we don't have the normal crew here. We have Calling young, fresh faces coming in. Yeah, <laughs> the junior <laughs> squad, exactly. Yeah, it's good it's to have too. us all here. Uh, we are going to go over a handful of things today. Uh, namely, we're going to discuss weight goals, power goals. They seem like they're odds a lot of the time, but maybe they aren't. And we're going to try to talk about the best way to accomplish both at the same time. We'll talk about failing workouts versus struggling through workouts and what each of us do individually. And it was cool because in the planning meeting, we all had different responses about how we handled that. So that'll be interesting. And we'll also talk about junk miles how we define that, which once again, all of us define it differently, but, uh, what junk miles are for each of us. And if, and if they have a place in our training and how, if they do indeed have a place in our training. So we're going to cover all that plus plenty of other details, but first things first, if you're listening to this on YouTube right now or watching it, I should say, thank you so much. And you can give us a thumbs up. If you give us a thumbs up in YouTube, that means that more cyclists are going to see it. So please do that. And you can also share this podcast, rate this podcast, however you're listening to it. Five stars, please. And if we don't deserve five stars, just let us know uh, what you what you think or how you think we should change. And we'll do that. So then hopefully we can earn a five-star review. And finally, the Successful Athletes Podcast. There's a link down below that you can click to be able to access that in the description on whatever you're doing here, or you can just search Successful Athletes Podcast. If you do that, you're going to come across awesome stories of athletes that are using Trainer Road to get faster or accomplish some sort of level of success. Last week, we talked to Austin Killips, uh, all about how Austin, how she gained 50 watts training through hormonal imbalances and uh, super interesting podcast. Uh, please uh, go check that one out. Also, next week, we're going to talk to, and I'm going to butcher this name just like I did all podcasts long. So if you want to hear me <laughs> screw up, please tune into this. But um, Egert Pura, and he is from Estonia, and he is the Estonian elite, well, I should say uh, non-pro national time trial champion. <clears throat> Uh, in his age group, which is super cool. Uh, and he's a triathlete. So bam, a triathlete flexing on all the road cyclists. Also, it was not just because I know road cyclists, you probably thought, Oh, flat out and back TT. It was not super curvy. I think it had like 30 turns in it. Uh, it was through like an urban area. So way to go. Egert. We're going to talk all about how he used train road to raise his FTP, how he executed. We get super nerdy on all the details. So check out that podcast. Uh, I think you'll like it quite a lot. Okay, uh, hosts, fellow hosts, it is December 31st as of recording of this podcast, which means that it's also, um, it means that it's uh, a, a New Year's Eve. So we need to talk about New Year's resolutions with all of you because you are not going to be on the next episode where we get to hold Chad, Nate, and I think Amber and myself accountable for the New Year's resolutions that we held last time. So this time we just get to talk about New Year's resolutions in general. Um, ooh, Pete cracked it open. And I just realized that I have a fatal flaw of not having a bottle opener with me. Um, I but I have one. I had to do that I, too. Pete, <laughs> you want to like uh, at some point in this conversation, maybe uh, teleport over and transfer a bottle opener? That would be awesome. Yeah, I can do that. <clears throat> okay, it's cool. shaped like a bike tool, so you have to uh, improvise. But I, I believe in you. 
Nice. <laughs> sounds sounds good. Pete's gonna bring over his bike and spin the wheel, and I have to knock it off in the spokes or something. So, oh my gosh. Um, so let's let's talk about New Year's resolutions. Uh, first of all, I guess the process behind each one of us, and if we do them, how we do them, that sort of a thing. Ivy, can you kick us off? Like, how do you manage this whole thing with having the annual goals that get placed at this time? Do you do that? Uh, what What are your thoughts? Sure. Well, I think that. Um having so many process goals throughout a year and throughout like seasons for racing for me means that like, I'm not usually motivated to have a new year's resolution. And in fact, I have never had one before. Um, because I feel like our, my year is so filled with goals already. Um, and I've never done it probably for the same reason that I don't or won't wear green on St. Patrick's day or like put milk and cookies out for Santa, like on principle, I just like, won't do it. Um, (laughs) but I'm going to do it this year because I'm bored and I should. (laughs) Yeah. Awesome. So are we sharing? I mean, it sounds like only, yeah. I mean, only the master squad gets to (laughs) be accountable later. Hey, Jonathan said it like, it's all on me. It's all on me. Uh, um, but yeah, yeah, no, if you go ahead and share them if you want to. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to try to not drink any alcohol for the whole month of January. Um, and nice. I think my process for like doing that and like reviewing it, um, because it's really just to see if cutting out even just like a couple weeks a drink or weeks, a couple drinks a week <laughs> will help me just like feel better. So I think I'm yeah. going to journal in the morning and do like my resting heart rate, um, right when I wake up and just like comprehensively like journal how I feel to see if just cutting that little bit extra out will make me feel better. Ooh, I like that. So the process goals that I picked up there were like, uh, the fact that you're going to every day be looking at how you feel because that's like the actual outcome, right? Like, like you want to cut out the drinking because you want it to make you feel better and you want to see that positive impact. And so then you're going to check on that part each day. That's cool. I, I dig that. Good one. Cool. Um, anything else that you want to share on that or before we pass it to Alex? It's going to, I don't know why I'm going to make quarantine time more difficult for myself. But like, <laughs> I think that's why well, I've been so like laissez faire about like, oh yeah, I can have like a few drinks a week. Like it's fine. Like quarantine sucks. Why would I make it any more challenging? Like I can indulge, but, um, yeah, I should be able to do a month. It should be fine. Awesome. Cool. Alex, uh, are you, I mean, much like Ivy is probably going to be a common thread for all of us in the sense that it's not like we have a drought of goal setting or goal chasing until January. Uh, however, and I'm sure that resonates with a lot of people on this podcast. How about you? How do you approach this every year? Yeah, I personally don't do New Year's resolutions, just the same thing. I have goals year-round, but um, with some new information that came to light, it's kind of New Year's resolution because I only just decided, but the big goal for 2021 is a top eight at Novomesto World Cup, which would automatically put me on the Tokyo 2021 squad. Hey, nice. There we go. I like it. That's a good goal. Um, So what about process goals to get there? Is it is that going to, cause you're a very process oriented person. You're very diligent with your training. Is this going to change your process goals at all? Like, is that having any sort of effect in the daily? Um, it's definitely a huge source of motivation. I mean, getting out the door feel felt a little easier the last few days as I kind of process that goal. But as far as 
what's going to get me there. It's, it's a string of races that'll give me UCI points leading up to that. Ultimately, it would be ideal to be in the top 40 in the world ranking going into that race to be able to enter the short track race and then try to get in the first three rows, which would mm-hmm. give me the best chance of finishing in the top eight. So there's, there's kind of like things to knock off along the way. But, um, as I was talking to Jen about it, it's kind of like a perfect storm of skill planning and luck that'll get me mm-hmm. there. So are you going to change your training at all for that? I, 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 I could see you probably not training or not changing as much that much about it because you're already still pushing to maximize for XEO. Yeah. I think the style of training won't change, but probably like where we're doing certain things will now that we know like May 15th needs to be like an absolute peak for me. So, and then kind of as we build those races leading up to it, like see what actually happens with COVID and everything, then we kind of plan, you know, to start building and being fast, I guess, by this point, and then peak ultimately for that Novemesto race in May. Cool. That's exciting. Yeah. That would be pretty sweet if we had, uh, we had a Tokyo Olympian uh, on the podcast. I know Nate as well has this long <laughs> shot that we talked about as well. So, so Nate's there too. Um, Nate, Alex Wild, basically the same. So, um, <laughs> I'll try to go for like um, fencing or something, or like handball <laughs> if that's still an Olympic sport. I'm gonna go for that. I, I bet those handball players are intense. I don't want anything to do with them. Um, <laughs> is there anything like the ping pong players? Yeah, seriously. Yeah, uh, Pete, how about you? Are you a resolutioner? Uh, I'm not really, but I do like like Alex. I like a. Uh, we have we call them B hags at work. Big hairy audacious mm-hmm. goals. Um, I like that North Star where you kind of everything gets you as close as you can to that North Star. And so mm-hmm. my North Star this year is actually I have two. Whoa, uh, I have. <laughs> um, this is the last year I'm going to race the USA Crits series uh, mm-hmm. as a whole or try to. Um, mm-hmm. Gonna there's some there's some things on the horizon that uh, necessitate this. But mm-hmm. this also overlaps. I'm actually a master's racer now, so I could be on hey. the I could be on the second <laughs> half of the podcast. Um, <laughs> uh, but I, I really do. I'm very interested to see uh, as someone who came through the ranks and I have made fun of master's racers probably too much for how long <laughs> I've been a bike racer. I'll, I'll throw that out there. Um, but I'm excited to, to kind of put my toe in the water and I do want to race masters nationals and, you know, kind of go full circle. I've raced bikes long enough now that now I get to be a masters racer. So Mm -hmm. hopefully I can kind of align racing some big races with racing some masters races. I now get to race Mm -hmm. two times a day, which is, man, it's going to be so awesome. And, uh, it's it's the dream. It's like being, it's like being a cat three again, right? When you can pick and choose and and race different ones. Yeah. I'm going to race the three, four, the threes only the two threes and the one, two, three today. Exactly. Um, (laughs) That was me last year. Yeah. (laughs) So, uh, I'm excited for that, but, uh, to kind of get me there, I, I've spent a lot of time not worried about winning races. Uh, Mm. and I like that kind of way I race but I'm going to try to slightly win. Let's stack slightly. the odds in my slightly more. Slightly. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm training like I want to win stuff um, instead mm-hmm. of just having the biggest engine I can and doing what I can. So um, that's yeah. kind of fun. There's like a definite 
I know I know where I'm the best um, versus everybody else and capitalizing on that so that when I use my power, uh, hopefully it beats everybody else's power is pretty mm-hmm. fun. Um, so I have been training with a little bit more of uh, let's maximize my physical capacity that I have as a racer um, mm-hmm. and kind of uh, do all the little things. So just like Alex, it's really easy for me to get up and train now since it's the last year, the last lap. Um, uh-huh. and I've been, I've actually been doing a lot of weightlifting this last couple of weeks because the new schedule came out and I don't think there's going to be any real racing until June or July, to be honest. Um, uh-huh. so it kind of, I took a huge step back and I was pretty pretty fit going into this, but it kind of gives you a nice bookend to like, this is where the season is. You only have to be fast for a few months. Um, and so I kind of got to start from scratch and I'm going to try to lift weights through the whole year this year, since I'm a master's racer, I'm about to fall apart. Um, <laughs> so that's kind of one thing I've, I'm doing. <laughs> you can, you can hear it, hear it, uh, coming out. I'm sorry. Uh, it's going to be so fun to race against you guys. Um, so that's, that's kind of what I'm doing is, is building out a full season with the idea that I do want to be successful, kind of capitalize on the physiology and the knowledge I have from a lot of years of training and see, just have a good time for the last year and be healthy and kind of, Uh. then, then I get to ride as much mountain bikes as I want after that and kind of be more of a, (laughs) a full, a full athlete instead of just a cyclist just a crit cyclist is, is really fun, but it takes a lot of time and, um, energy and traveling and stuff. So this way I get to step back and just be a bike rider again. The thing that stands out to me to that is Pete hasn't been trying to win races so far, everybody. So if that's the case, we better watch out (laughs) because locally uh, Pete is very hard to beat as is. So I don't know what this means once he actually is trying to win. Um, so that was a subtle, but not so subtle flex Pete. Um, thank you. Uh, yeah, yeah, for sure. I'm, I don't have, so I'm always like a big time, like new year's resolutioner, but more in the I think like reflection and moonshots, like you said, uh, Pete, like I reflect back on like, okay, well, like all the little goals that I had and all the process goals and everything else, where has it brought me at the end of the year? And then much like, uh, if you heard on the short and abbreviated podcast last week, where <coughs> I encourage people to look back at the year and what they've like, where they've come to then look forward and, and plan ahead. So for me, it, nothing actually really changes. And everybody that's listening to this, you can just go back to like the previous three probably <laughs> episodes on the New Year's New Year's Eve, and you'll see the fact that it's kind of the same goals. So national championships and working toward that. But I've done a ton of process changing, which I'll probably go over next week. Oh, Pete's here, and he's opening up the bottle of Topo Chico for me. Thank you, Pete. Um, so, um, but with all that, like, Aww. I think that yeah, I know what a good friend, huh? Um, <laughs> it's true he can teleport um but with with that said i think that the i'll I'll go over all the process stuff when we have uh pete or sorry nate and amber and chad on next week but it's basically the same stuff i'm just i'm i'm uh really cool to hear how all three of us have different approaches and training is kind of fun because it always gives us a vehicle that we can direct ourselves toward health with these sort of goals and also it gives us like a process to do it instead of just like I want to get in, you know, whatever it is, beach bod shape, or I want to just go to the gym or, you know, like the, the traditional ones that we hear about. Uh, I feel like we can all sit back and be really grateful for kind of the leg up that we have. If you are a person that's used to structured training, cause you have like 
something where it can be a process goal and you can execute on it. Super cool. So um, don't bag on New Year's resolutions. Don't bag on New Year's resolutioners. Uh, it's everybody trying to make themselves better. So it's pretty cool. So uh, cheers to a new year, everybody that has uh, something to drink here on the podcast. Cheers. It's not booze, everyone. It's, it's, it's bubbly it's water. Bubbly water. <laughs> I think all four of us have bubbly water here. So sorry that Chad's not here this week. Um, <laughs> I mean, we could shotgun it if it makes everybody feel better. Yeah. <laughs> yeah have you can, tried right? to shotgun bubble water? Those bubbles are big. Yeah. It hurts. <laughs> <laughs> Let's get into Chase's question. Uh, so he says, uh, he, he really is asking, what is an ideal power curve like? But we'll, we'll, uh, we'll go into here. He says, I'm curious to what the perfect power curve is for each genre of riding. I'm an enduro rider and my power curve has the look of an ex- exponential decay graph, like a skateboard ramp. You and us both here, uh, all of us listen to this. We all have that, by the way, uh, Chase. He says, but I think that what he's getting at is an enduro rider typically focuses on hard efforts that are repeatable efforts, uh, rather than long sort of efforts. Like 10 minute power usually is of uh, little focus or shouldn't be a focus to an enduro rider in most cases, unless it's a very strange course on a very big day. So uh, he says to me, this says that I have a decent aerobic engine, but I'm not, of eff- not effective at sustaining higher powers for longer periods of time. So what should my power curve look like as an enduro rider? I thought this would be a good opportunity to know where my where to focus my attention for this upcoming season. Should I focus more on shorter power intervals? And then finally a question, is there a perfect, in quotes, power curve at all? And does it differ based on your discipline? Uh, so <clears throat> we should probably talk about the purpose of a power curve. I actually posted something on my Instagram stories and you can follow us. If you go on YouTube right now, you can see all of our handles on here and you can follow us all on Instagram. And I recommend doing that. Uh, good follows, send us messages. We'll chat. Uh, but I shared something on there just yesterday about how I use PR charts. And especially it's, it's different when you use trainer road because you have seasons and season match and all the cool features that go around that. I was looking at my power curve and it was showing that I was not as fast this year as last year. And I was sad. And then I clicked the season match thing. So then instead of comparing 11 weeks of training in the year before to five weeks of training this year, cause that's how far I am through it. It actually compared five weeks of progress through this year and five weeks of progress last year. And guess what? I'm way ahead. So, uh, cool stuff there, but using power curves can be tricky for a couple reasons. Cause I think that it can make you fall into this trap of thinking that it defines you as a rider and what you can and should do. It can also make you, you can obsess over the actual shape of the graph and you can like be really upset by little peaks and valleys and try to smooth it out. You can do all those things and that's not really what it's for. Um, it's really for tracking PRs over time and, and being able to see how you compare from one time frame to another. And that's what it's really, uh, I think that's at least where I get the most. Like I mentioned, using season match is a good way to be able to compare that. You can get as detailed as you want also with trainer roads PRs because you can measure it by second and then you can click in and see every ride where you got those PRs and all that stuff. Um, so I guess this is kind of like focusing on how we use PRs here and with seasons, you can build anything you want. Like Pete even had like pre base seasons that he built up. Um, yeah. So you can isolate that time. <clears throat> yeah, I, I just think it matters so much. Just like you said, uh, it's one snapshot versus another snapshot. And that's so hard to compare. But if you're looking at um, like a period in time, and you're kind of adhering to the same structured training for that same period of time, it's really easy to see how you're progressing based on previous times. And so mm-hmm. my usually my no- November, December always is pretty similar as far as training. 
Um, and so I just make those my own seasons and call them pre 2019, pre 2018. And I've made them in the past. And so you can actually see that come December 15th or whatever, if, if you start November 11th instead of November 1st, you can still, uh, kind of cut that out with, with season match, but you can just see how you're progressing and, and kind of your trajectory and where you're headed, which I think is much more important than the actual numbers <laughs> you're putting out. Um, because yeah. it's all about the work you put in and that's kind of like, uh, the power curve doesn't define what you've, what you are. It's what you've done. So, yeah. Cause uh, yours Pete kind of like would say that like, if you looked at your power curve relative to another person's power curve, just proving the point that you just said that it doesn't define the athlete you are, it would say that you're like a really good sprinter. However, you do not target sprints ever in races. Yeah. I'm, right? I'm like a pure sprinter. Uh, I should be a pure sprinter, uh, according to my power curve. Uh, but you don't win sprints when I you're in your races. Sprints. You don't win sprints. Nope. Yeah. So it's like a good example of the fact that like, you know, relatively speaking to somebody else, yes, your power curve may look different, but that doesn't mean that you're like that athlete and you're kind of stuck in that box. We mention this all the time. Like, you know, you're an amateur athlete, like you're not paid. You can, you can be whatever you want and you can train however you want. It's really cool. Uh, whereas mm -hmm. a pro athlete like Caleb Ewan isn't going to say that I'm going to change to be like a super domestique and sit on the front at 450 Watts and tow everybody around. He just doesn't get that because he's a pro and he's very specialized in what he does. And even for you, Ivy, um, it says that you shouldn't be a good sprinter, kind of the opposite of Pete, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, with the right critical eye on all of my numbers, like I shouldn't be good at anything. Uh, like <laughs> you really can't let those numbers like, be a deter like determine what kind of writer you think you are. Like my numbers say that I shouldn't be a good sprinter whatsoever. And yet like mm -hmm. I've won a handful of bunch sprints. So you too, right, Alex, you've won a lot of bunch sprints. You're just secret undercover <laughs> sprinter too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, just ask Justin Williams when he came out to the lunch route at Specialized, you know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You're actually sprints. Yeah. 20 minutes are my specialty. For, <laughs> for 20 minutes. I was just going to say, yours says that you're like a TT specialist. If you were to look at it that way to try to define yourself, right? But you've never, I don't know if you've ever done like a road TT. I've never ridden a TT bike. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Such a shows. Like for all of us, like your, your power curve can say, if you look at your power curve, you can fall into the temptation of trying to let it define the athlete that you are, but in most, it's not that at all. It's really like a reflection of, of like really of what you're doing, right? Alex, like you had, you had some thoughts on this about like what it actually means to you versus trying to put you into a box. Yeah. I mean, I think Pete said it. it's just a collection of like your highlights really, you know, it's, it's what you've done for a certain amount of times. And if you scroll across it, it's like, you'll see the date at which you did it change. Right. So it's like your 23 second PR was on a different day than your 24 second PR. So it's like, it's a collection of what you can do in training, but also if you went out and tried to mimic that power curve, you would last probably like 15 <laughs> seconds. <laughs> so yeah. it's, but then there's also more to it, right? Like it's a super powerful tool and it kind of helps you understand where your strengths and weaknesses lie, but it's like in racing, there's so much more to it. There's repeatability. There's in mountain biking, there's technical skill. There's, you know, in road racing, there's surfing the pack. Like I think you mentioned on a podcast before, the best way to make a climb hard is to be inefficient leading up to it. So it's like, mm -hmm. it's the same thing, right? It's like, it'd be great if you could 
put out 400 watts for 20 minutes on that climb. But if you're fighting for position leading up to it, it's like, that's not going to happen. So I don't think there's any perfect power curve. And I mean, even if you took like all the best mountain bikers in the world and you looked at their power curves, they're probably not the same. They have different strengths. You know, one rider can really punch out of the gate. One rider has a really high threshold and just can't perform, you know, a huge amount above it, but they all get to the same place and can race on the same course. And I like what Pete said when he's trying to target winning races, he knows what he's good at. So it's like, you try to make the race come down to what you're good at. So use your power curve to your advantage. I don't think that means don't improve your power curve, but if you're at a race and this is your power curve and you know you have a great one minute power, try to make that race. So it's your one minute power against theirs. Mm, That's like a really good way to use it for like self-analysis and identification of opportunity, right? Uh, we talk about like, there's like product market fit where like, it doesn't matter how good your product is. If it doesn't find its right market, it's never going to be successful. It's never going to get legs and never going to go anywhere. Just like a rider, if you don't have a good race scenario for that rider, they're likely not going to be successful. So a lot of the time it's, it's like, it's like rider race fit or rider course fit, depending on it and road racing. It really, since it's so dependent upon the, the pack and how the pack is racing it, it's really like rider race fit. Um, and really keen observation, Alex of saying like, you know, trying to make the race fit your power curve. And Pete is a master at doing that by the way. So, um, but then when we talk about mountain biking a lot of the time or a time trial or Ironman course or gravel race, anything like that, it comes down to much more like rider race, or I should say rider course fit. And we actually, uh, Alex, you raced mountain bike national championships two years ago, the most recent one. (laughs) And as did I, and that course was unique because a lot of the time mountain biking is about repeatability. It's about your ability to recover, even though you've just gone way over your limits and you do that repeatedly over and over and over. But this race was up at 9,000 feet in elevation. So really high. And then on top of that, it was basically like a 10 to 13 minute climb, depending on what sort of, you know, what level you were at, but a 10 to 13 minute climb. And then after that really long descent, then just kind of like a traverse that you worked your way back to the bottom of that climb. So it was really like the course, if you really just trained your 10 to 13 minute power, that was where you needed to be. So that's where a power curve can be really helpful because if you know that that course is going to stress you in a very specific way, then you can look at that and track that over time and say like, oh yeah, it's getting better. And that's why like, even I'm going to give this away little, uh, Easter egg for anybody that wants to do mountain bike national championships. But that's why cross country marathon is actually, I would say a better plan compared to cross country Olympic for that course, because cross country marathon actually works your six to 12 minute power somewhere around there more often than, than it would with normal cross country Olympic. So, so you can use a power curve for that to try to figure out like where the fit is, um, courses, matter much more than the discipline. And it doesn't really make sense for us to push ourselves into a discipline just because our power curve showing what we have done, not what we're capable of shows that we should be a certain type of rider. Um, so, so that's like a, I I think a a key point in that for sure. Um, what other points do we want to make on this one? We've jumped around in relation to our notes, but, um, uh, Pete, do you have anything that you want to add to this? Yeah. And what it is, is uh, just like Alex mentioned, it's up to you to turn the race or the course into something that suits you the best. And like the way you mentioned the the way I race as many races as I possibly can is make them. So they're suited to me. Um, and like, that's if, if there's a really hard punchy climb, I'm going to make it really hard leading up to this, 
the hard punchy climb because hopefully that kind of mitigates some of the pain that I'm going to feel. Um, but if it's a steady crosswindy, um, you know, 2% downhill, I'm actually going to race it the same way that there's a punchy climb coming ahead because that's when I can also do the most damage. Um, but it, it, it helps to really look at a course and the people in the race and how they're going to race it and kind of swirl all those together and think about what's the, what's the way that you can save the most energy and still utilize your strength. Um, and so it's, it's a constant battle that you have to be thinking about every race, every, the way they're racing it, every course. Um, and you, you should kind of come in with a plan and a couple plans based on, uh, like your A, B and C plan, because if you, if you just kind of shoot from the hip, it works every once in a while, but you, you're not learning and, and kind of capitalizing on the, the strengths that you have, um, which, uh, makes bike riding really hard. And I think Ivy was talking about how some people don't race bikes after a while after they lose, even though their power profile says they should win. Um, and it's because they're not using it correctly. Uh, just because you have the power profile doesn't mean you're going to win stuff um, right off the bat. So it takes a lot more work than just putting out the 400 watts for the 20 minutes, unfortunately. Yeah, and Ivy, you actually have some notes in here about like, so you can focus on a power curve excessively and kind of forget about your training plan. But you have some some notes in here about the enduro, like enduro specific riding and training and why that would be important. Yeah. And I think to expand upon like what Pete just said for Chase specifically, like, um, each day is going to be different. And, you know, Pete mentioned some things about like how you'll have to like key on each course and each like race scenario differently. And with Enduro, like every, like the terrain, like so many things are going to change per event that you do that, like focusing so much on that power curve really isn't going to, um, I mean, it's just much more important to look at what, look at it as a tool, just like any other training metric and approach each, each race day differently. And that's really where like enduro training specifically will help with that, you know, preparation of repeatability and comprehensive fitness so that Chase has the best tools on the day. Yeah. It really with enduro, it just comes down to that. It's repeatability. Like how many of those efforts can you do over and over again? Um, also, yeah arm pump. I, Pete just raised up his hands. I don't know if that's what he was getting at, but that's another yeah. thing too. Yeah, that's for sure. That matters so much more than my power curve in all enduro races is my forearms getting really, really tired. <laughs> Seriously. Yeah. Pete and I had, I think like a third, was it a 13 minute stage, um, that we had from the top of North star to the bottom and we finished it and it was like, it was physically hard to move. Like, afterward that 13 when you, minutes when you un when you take your fingers off your handlebars because you can't straighten your fingers anymore yeah you can't yeah. you have to pull them off and it yeah, hurts you have to pull to them move off them. <laughs> oh my gosh yeah so Man, long distance. Fun, though. <laughs> so much fun yeah yeah um and also pete and i going either pedaling up or riding the chairlift up depending on what happened and both of us like i i mean not talking to each other and absolutely sharing the same exact wavelength of like, what the heck are we doing out here? Like it was, it was, I could feel it in Pete's head and he could feel it in mine the whole time. So uh, not enduro racers. Uh, okay. No. From Nick, he says, uh, I want to get a power meter on my mountain bike and I ultimately want to use it for pacing mountain bike marathon races. Smart choice. Hey, eh, Alex, <laughs> um, he says, however, I'm not sure how to use it on regular rides. 
I do my structured work indoors and go for mountain bike rides ranging from two to five hours. And these rides are unstructured and mountain bike data is usually more scattered than road riding. So other than, and this is a super common, um, objection to using power on a mountain bike, right? Like we, I think we've all heard this from numerous different sources where people are like, oh, well, since power bounces around on a mountain bike, who cares? You can't even use it. Um, <laughs> so untrue. So, uh, he says, uh, other than pacing races, but we're still going to talk about pacing races, by the way, uh, and perhaps doing structured work and work outdoors. How can I make the most use of a power meter on my mountain bike? Um, so it's probably best to talk about why power data on a mountain bike is useful period. And then we can go into the rest. Um, Pete, do you want to kick us off on that? Like how you use power data from your mountain bike? Yeah, I, I really, I enjoy power data. Um, and the, my rule of thumb is I would much rather have it and not use it than need it and not have it. So if you have access to a power meter, right, if you have access to a power meter and you do look at power data for some things in your life and you understand that, I do, it's really hard for me to understand why you would purposely not have it. Um, and the one thing that's been really insightful to me as someone who's ridden a lot of uh, a lot of things with power in their lives and then getting a mountain bike and having a power meter on it was that the RPE for me is so different um, based on the power numbers I'm doing on a mountain bike and the power numbers I'm doing on a road bike. Um, the RPE is very similar, but the numbers are not the same. Uh, and so that shows probably my uh, my lack of abilities in technical climbing and uh, traction and things like that. But at the same time, um, it's really insightful to know that a really hard mountain bike climb for me is like, is not the same as a really hard road bike climb when I can just sort of hone in and just spin my legs in little circles as fast mm. and hard as I can. <laughs> um, and so, but the same thing, it's really, it's really fun to see how your power, how your power data compares and just have it and don't, don't change anything yet. Right. Like record data for a while. It's the same. It's, it applies to almost all things in life. If you, if you're not measuring it, you can't make a positive change without, uh, just making something up and hoping for the best. So if you're recording data and then you look at it and then you start making small tweaks, you can actually, um, capitalize on having it. But if you're just one of those people that says, uh, it's pretty spiky when I'm on my, my mountain bike, I probably don't need it today. Uh, it just seems like you're leaving something on the table to me. Mm. Mm-hmm. Alex, how about you? Uh, your powers, one of mountain biking's mountain biking power meters, greatest proponents, I would say, uh, <laughs> I, how, how do you use it? I don't have a bike without a power meter. I'll, I'll start with that. So I'm very biased <laughs> in the realm of power meters. Um, I think to Pete's point, it's, it's great. If you have it, I don't know why you wouldn't run it. Even if you're running it in the background to look afterwards and, I'm probably going to regret saying this, but probably the only reason I could ever see 30 second smoothed power being helpful. If, if you really don't like it spiking all over the place, um, normally it spikes up, but it comes back down. So like it levels out. Like I still use a power meter to gauge my climbs and on mountain bikes, I find it more often to hold me back. Um, like, like to Pete's point, it's, it's really easy to find a technical climb or a really steep gradient and stuff like that. So it's really easy to go like overpower on endurance rides and stuff like that, but it all evens out. And I use normalized power a lot just to kind of tell me like for the ride with the climbing and the descending, 
Um, another trick I use is my average power on my screen for my mountain bike doesn't include zeros because mm. I hate having this huge anxiety when I get to the bottom of a descent and it's like 180. <laughs> so it's dropped down a yeah. bunch from, from so, those, from the coasting time because I know myself and I'll just go ride 300 until it says endurance pace again. <laughs> so if I do it without zeros and I, the time that I'm pedaling, it says I'm in the endurance zone, then I'm good to go. And then normally the normalized power kind of works itself out. If I do that, it's normally about the same as well. So mm. and another way too, is, uh, for you, you've talked about this plenty of times and with calorie estimation too, cause that's oh, absolutely, if you don't have a power meter, you're, you're doing a hop, skip and a jump, I would say to get mm -hmm. to those calorie numbers. Whereas with the power meter, you have a much more direct measurement. Yeah. You know. The room for error is a lot less with the calculation based on watts. Obviously it's based on efficiency, but if you move that needle, you're going to be, I think it's plus or minus 5% on the KJs anyway, whereas the heart rate is wildly variable. And we talked about mm -hmm. this before. Some people's max is like 220 and some people's max is 150. So it's like them both working at 150, they're not going to burn the same amount of calories. So it's really helpful yeah. for that. If you are tracking intake, um, mm -hmm. It's, yeah. I just, I don't see a reason not to run it if you have it. And I would highly suggest running it. I mean, yeah. I ride my mountain bike on the road too. So if you have one bike to rule them all, I've, as you see, as you get older, you yeah. get wiser. Now Pete wants to ride mountain bikes. So <laughs> <laughs> everybody mountain bikes are the way they go just fine on roads. <laughs> this is that's, that's like, it's actually very true. They can ride on road, whereas the other way they cannot, um, I, I actually want to combine kind of both of what you said here, like power has been really helpful in helping me tie in fatigue points. So a lot of the time, uh, I'm sure that everyone's experienced this. You've been in a race and like, or in a season of racing or something like that. And you keep missing the moves or you keep, you're just too tired by the time that thing comes along, whatever that big move is or uh, course feature or something like that. And power has been really helpful for me to figure out my fatigue points or like what triggers the sort of fatigue that disqualifies me from being a player in the race. And many times what that means is like, and this is like, you can use the interval search feature on trainer road too, but like it's when I spike over 600 Watts. And if I do that too much, then that really starts to hurt me. Right. Uh, this is just an example. Or it's like when I spend, you know, where it's like, if I spend 30 seconds over 300 Watts and I do that repeatedly over and over, in other words, trying to close gaps or responding to attacks when I could let somebody fill in, in front of me or on a mountain bike, it's when you come to those little steep sections and you jam it every time out of the saddle, instead of just sitting in and trying to stay consistent up them. And you'll actually look back and you'll start to see trends where like, okay, I really start to feel terrible and I lose my performance potential when I do X, Y, and Z leading up to this. And if you don't have an objective way to measure your performance, then you're purely going off of subjective measures for that. So here's an example of how that can be misleading. You could say, oh, well, it was super windy that day. So I must just be bad at riding in the wind. But since you don't have a way of measuring that, you don't know that actually it's not the wind. It was just the fact that since you ride one foot off of everybody's wheel, instead of riding very close to it, you're always, always carrying 20, 30 Watts more, right? And now you can actually see the wattage increase and you can see what the problem is in mountain biking. It's so, so common. Nobody thinks twice about standing up and surging up something, which it's not a problem unless you're on the rivet, right? Like when you're really close to your line and you just, if you do any more, then it's going to lights go out and you blow out the back. 
and check engine light comes on, that's when those little standing up sections and you surge up that little rise, that has to be governed. You can't do that because if you do that, that means your race is over. So with a power meter, you can actually see what the cost is of that. Whereas when you're doing it, otherwise that little surge, when you go up it, it doesn't feel like much until 30 seconds later. And then you really start to feel tired. So it's really good in kind of figuring that out. And repeatability is a huge thing where that's impossible to quantify really. Like you can say, yeah, well, when I do 30 seconds all out and then 30 seconds off, I do 30 thirties. And by the 10th, I'm always tired. If you're just going off heart rate, that's really tricky. Or if you're just going off of any other sort of metric, but with power, you can know that it's like, okay, well, it's actually when I surge over X Watts and I do that in close succession, that's where I, I start to fall apart. So those are ways that I use my power meter outside of pacing, outside of racing to, to identify those things. And I use, and I do that all the time. It's not like a one-time thing all throughout my training process. I find new weaknesses that are unfortunately very surprising. <laughs> so that's like, uh, that happens, uh, all the time I'm, I'm going through and using that. H- how about you Ivy? And maybe we can even like tie in cross and everything else too, since you've done a fair share of that. Yeah. I mean, apart from, you know, using a power meter as a tool to identify your weaknesses um, and measure things like repeatability, I find that having that information after an event gives me a lot of confidence to carry into my training and into the next race when I can see an objective measure of what I've done. Um, Where alternatively, you can look at the strengths and repeatability of your effort and yeah, carry more confidence. it's, it's a big mental tool for me. Um, and while each discipline is different, like for cross, it's really hard to look at your power meter when you're racing. And I know a lot of athletes don't, um, but it can be used as a tool, um, depending upon the course. Like I know a lot of athletes that will set, um, like a normalized power and check each lap through the start finish, for example, to make sure they're not, um, you know, reaching a ceiling that will potentially put them in, in a hole because, I know that I struggle with, um, pacing, like the first few laps are always, uh, far too spicy for me. So I probably should, (laughs) yeah, start using that as a tool. Yeah. This is the interesting thing about, let's talk about the pacing side, even though, um, I apologize in this case, in this case, Nick, you said other than pacing races, but we're going to talk about it here. Um, I've, I feel like there's this misunderstanding out there that exists. So like a great example is Pogacar when he did his time trial at the end of the tour de France this year. And there were like, people like he didn't even use a power meter. Like that's amazing. The power meter. And like, there's this assumption that like, because he didn't use a power meter, he was able to perform like he did. And it's a power meter never is going to somehow make you outperform yourself. It never, like, it's never going to make you perform better than you physically can. Like those are your physical limits. And in more cases, often than not, what it does is it just holds us back. Like it doesn't pull you further along. It holds us back because our eyes are always bigger than our stomachs. So with when you talk about pacing um, and particularly about like that example of like Pogacar and that sort of a thing, he's a sort of athlete that who knows how many thousands of hours that athlete has training by power, by prescription, knows his body extremely well, that sort of a thing, something entirely different. And if he had his power data, I doubt that he was going to be sticking perfectly to a digit as much as using that data to inform his perception and going throughout it, right, on how he trains. However, power does not enable you to somehow outperform yourself, and it also doesn't hold you back from performing yourself, or it shouldn't. 
if you have a properly paced power goal there, it's a fantastic tool for pacing. And in almost every case, it just caps us. And that's how we get faster is instead of using up all of our energy, then blowing up and going slow, it's a better way to make sure that we kind of keep it even. And whether that's for the whole race, you have a normalized power goal. Like for myself, I'll know that at this elevation, I can probably hold a normalized power of this for this 90 minute cross country race. So if I look down at that race and I'm one lap in and I'm like way over that, I need to calm down uh, because I'm going to blow up and I'm going to completely ruin my race. And that's very common. Or you can even look at it like per section um, in cyclocross. Like there's those tight sections with a bunch of turns that you'll have where it'll be like back to back turns. And it's actually, even though you have coasting time, it's really easy to blow yourself up in those sections because out of every turn, you're accelerating really hard, right? Um, even if you, and then on the opposite side of it, it could be you get into, a, you know, like, uh, you just have a course and you have a lap like Tulsa tough, for example, with a really hard climb in it. And you know that if you're going through that and you're just, your normalized power is spiking way too hard. Every lap, kind of like Ivy was talking about your race is going to be short lived. So like, you can have that normalized power cap that you can use, but then I guess at other times too, it can be a reach. Some days you're feeling rough and that goal kind of reminds you of what you're capable of. And you can then weigh whether you want to reach for that or not, like a I don't know, like a time trial is a good example of that. Like Pete, do you use power when you're in a breakaway uh, to be able to moderate uh, the effort? Yeah, I was going to say it's it's funny. One of the funny things about normalized power is it kind of matters how you're putting down the power and how the rest is coming at you. Um, and it's something that everybody should sort of know uh, about themselves. Like your normalized power cap is probably mine is 10% above my FTP it, for the same amount of time, most of the time for most races. Um, and that's because I'm pretty efficient and my body really likes those small recoveries. Um, but if you don't, if you're not, uh, depending on your physiology, if you're, if you do really well with longer rests, um, sometimes the normalized power cap will be closer to your FTP. Um, and that's something just through exploration and, and testing. And, um, one of the crazy parts about uh, breakaways is you probably have to go too hard. Uh, you, you probably want to go above your normalized power cap if you want your breakaway to succeed and then you hold on. Um, but it's most like, of it's the like time, an initial hardness. And then after mm -hmm. that you settle in, right? Yeah. And so to get away and to make sure everybody's working together and everybody's taking or by yourself, uh, it, you have to go really hard. <laughs> so <laughs> it is nice to know that you're going hard enough. Um, and it also is nice to know that, um, after you kind of get away, you can settle back in and you've already used, used a bunch of energy at the right time to get the distance between you and whoever's chasing. Um, mm -hmm. but yeah, it's, I think the last, depending on the breakaway and depending on the course, make sure that you know that if you're only getting a couple, if there's, if it's like a four corner crit and you're only getting 10 seconds of rest per lap, that's not your normalized power is going to be different than if you're doing crybaby hill on Tulsa tough and you're coasting for 30 seconds a lap. Um, you kind of have to weigh that into the equation too. So pay attention to what your normalized power looks like per course, and then you'll be able to maximize uh, how you're how you're spending that energy a little better. Nice pro tips, Pete. Um, <laughs> two other things come to mind for this before we move on to the next one: training stress. Uh, if you want an accurate representation of your training stress, then power is the best way to get that. So that's a, a, another reason that it would be useful to you outside of the context of pacing. 
And then the other one too is PRs. Now you actually have a measurable way to measure your performance like we've been talking about before. So without that, uh, you don't get it. And it's always frustrating too if you, even though power meters are getting like a lot more achievable, like four eyes, I think you can get them for like uh, $300 in the US uh, if you send in your power or your crank arm to them. Like that's much better than it used to be. Uh, but still they're, they're expensive, but it is always frustrating. I I'm sure you've all experienced this. Alex, like he said, has a power meter on every bike, but I've had bikes where I don't have a power meter on that. And I, I'm always wondering like, Oh, maybe actually I have some PRs from that. I don't know if I do or not. And it's always like a, a question mark in the back of my head uh, from when I was riding that bike. So this whole conversation um, has me thinking that there needs to be a metric for matches left. Like it's like the beers, like calorie thing. Like you need a, a head unit yeah. that's just like, you have five <laughs> matches left. I know. Right. Yeah. You get down to one and you're just like, uh Oh yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Got- basically, basically like a, a, a sailboat without a sail at that point, you're stuck. Yeah. So, um, let's go into Tom's question. He says, hi, all thanks for the continued quality content. My question relates to achieving the best results from an individual workout. Is it more beneficial to complete an entire workout at 95% or fail in the intervals at a hundred percent stated more plainly? Is it more beneficial to complete the workout at a lower intensity or will failing at a higher intensity derive similar results? Uh, the answer to this one is it depends. <laughs> so <laughs> we can just leave it there. Or we can actually get into a little bit more. Um, we actually have quite a lot of notes on this one. I think that we'll probably end up talking about how we adjust when things aren't right. But then we'll also talk about the different, you know, kind of like, because once again, it depends the rules I say loosely here that we use individually on, on that sort of a thing. I, I think probably the best, the first thing to cover is like, it depends on the workout. If it's a key workout, then I'm much more likely to try to con- to complete that workout at a hundred percent if it's a rough day. Like, so that's the assumption. It's a rough day and you're not able to perform like you should be able to perform, whether it's lack of sleep, whether it's any number of different things that you're facing. So if it's like a key workout, what I mean by that is if I'm doing a short power build and that one really focuses on those three to five minute VO2 efforts, and throughout the week, I might have one or two workouts that really focus on that sort of intensity and duration. But then my other workouts that I'm facing probably aren't going to, they're going to be lower intensity, longer efforts, that sort of a thing. So if it's the key workouts for that week, and it's easy to recognize which ones those are, then I'm much more likely to try to push those to a hundred percent compliance. Like I'm going to, I'm going to hold on to the bitter end sort of a thing. Um, and also if it's like higher intensity, then the accuracy matters more. And the reason that's the case is because when you talk about energy systems that you're utilizing as, and really it kind of coincides with the, the power zones that you have as they go higher in intensity, they get smaller, the windows become smaller. And that's because the bandwidth to bring about the specific changes that you want in your body in that energy system, it just operates within a narrower range and it gets narrower and narrower as it goes up. So as a result, like you can turn down a sweet spot workout and you, you kind of have more bandwidth than if you're doing a VO two workout, turning it down when you do a VO two workout can easily pop you into threshold territory. And as a result, you'll be building something that's going to be quite different in terms of what's actually intended for the workout. So those are kind of like how I weigh how much, like how much grit I'm going to have that day, so to speak, like how hard I'm going to hold on to what I'm supposed to hold on to. And on other days I'll I'll be okay, depending on the workout with just, you know, making those adjustments and going through, uh, Pete, how about, how about you? 
Yeah, this one was really funny when we were talking about it because you kind of uh, gleaned some insight into everybody's psychology a little more. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. and I would say that's something you should definitely know about yourself as an athlete. Like, uh, try to set yourself up for success, uh, no matter what that is. And so for me, we realized that I I just hate failing workouts. I can't stand it. It drives me <laughs> up the wall. So and it, it derails my training. It makes me less excited about the following workout. There's it. There's kind of um, more down the pipeline if I fail a workout that is going to be against me than if I uh, do a slightly uh, easier workout and succeed. So the way I've the way I've kind of done this is two ways. Um, if I'm really feeling awful and I'm going into like a a key workout, um, I'll turn it. I'll start with it turned down, and I'll try to only do five percent. Um, because kind of, if you can make it through the first one, uh, we've all been there where once you make it through the first one, the rest aren't that bad. Um, and so <laughs> that's just you, buddy. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> uh, so this is Pete I, logic at work. Yeah, this is, this is real Pete logic. So yep. <laughs> what I would rather do is turn down the first interval than turn down the last interval because that's easier on my psychology. So, yep. I would turn, I'll turn down the first one and then bump it up a couple percent if I still feel really bad um, and try the second set or the second block or whatever. And if I'm still feeling really bad and unhappy, I'll probably call it then. I won't even, I'll just say, I'm not ready for this today. I, it's not something I should do. I'm not going to beat my head against the wall. And the next workout, I'll put more grit into and I'm going to pass the next workout no matter what. Um, but the other half or the other side of this coin is I started doing less workouts per week. Um, and I started doing it the year I got faster or more competitive. I started doing less workouts per week, but more key workouts per, or I, I mm-hmm. just had three key workouts. I had to nail every single week. And if you're kind of rested and motivated and there's only three workouts per week, it's easier for me to, grid up and uh, start mm-hmm. just say, hey, this is it. I get a rest day tomorrow. I can really lay it all out there. Um, I have to finish strong. And then I get to wait till Thursday um, and do it again. And then I do it again on Saturday. And everything in between that is leading into let's maximize our time that we're spending on the bike. Um, and so my compliance rate went up and I was able to do harder workouts because I was slightly more rested and I wasn't failing um, or kind of biting off too much. Um, and I, I was still doing pretty large chunks of TSS. Well, for me, like, I think it was like six or 700, but only doing that in three workouts a week and probably one easy spin. Um, it made it so that I really was there to do some work on those days and I got much faster and my compliance rate went up. Um, and it was way easier for me to deal with mentally. And so I still kind of adhere to that. I do three workouts a week that I care about and I'm not going to, compromise those in any way, uh, by doing extra stuff, uh, unless it's mountain biking, which doesn't compromise anything. <laughs> yeah, actually um, mountain biking TSS doesn't exist, right? Yeah. We can just convince ourselves of that. So we can just you do don't have a power meter it. on it. It's fine. <laughs> hey, there you go. Smart thinking. Uh, Pete. <laughs> so, so that's, that's the way that I've learned to deal with the way I like to do workouts is not fail. And I just do less higher compliance and make sure I'm really motivated. And, um, if they're hard, I look forward to uh, a hard workout. I look forward to more and I'm excited about accomplishing. And then it kind of builds snowballs. And then the next workout I'm excited and then I can accomplish it. And then it snowballs. So that's the way I I've 
I've learned to deal with my training psychology. <laughs> this is th that brings up and reinforces like a different point to this question, but I think a lot of athletes feel the pressure to do more and more volume all the time, but an athlete at Pete's level has found value in doing less because that allows him to hit it with more precision and consistency is with their, tr with training is the greatest influence that we see, uh, across like the large pool of athlete data that we have in making somebody faster. If you're consistent, you get faster. Like that is across the board. That is a rule that actually proves that to be very effective but it's hard to be consistent when you have too much work on your plate because it ends up pulling from everything and then it makes those key workouts really hard to do. So kudos Pete on finding what works and probably swallowing pride. I assume along with that to like do less because a lot of the time pride is involved in that, that decision. I, so I did a lot of years of riding too much. Um, mm -hmm. and it wasn't helpful. I just didn't know. I, I just rode more because that's what you assume. If you're doing more of it, it has to be better. Um, mm. and it, it took a couple of years of doing that incorrectly before I realized that I was selling myself short. Yeah, no doubt. Ivy, how about you? Uh, what do you, what do you do for, for this, the adjustments on bad days? <laughs> yeah. Well, Pete and I are different people. Uh, <laughs> I love to fail workouts. And, uh, <laughs> uh, but yeah, where, where Pete tries to like take some intensity off if he's not feeling great. Um, my approach is different. I still try to hit that first, uh, interval at 100% intensity. Yeah. Just, <laughs> just do it. Uh, and because I think that if it means that I can't, you know, I should interpret it as a signal that it's, um, time to step back and that self care and some rest will be more beneficial for me in the long run, um, than doing an effort that isn't 100% there. Um, and that totally varies. Like, athlete to athlete, um, because the reason why you fail a workout can vary greatly. Um, so it's important, um, I think to listen to your body and apply some introspective thought on what could be causing you to not meet your mark. Um, mm -hmm. so I think Pete mentioned like a Venn diagram or an astrology chart or crystals. I don't know, some <laughs> process you go through to decide like what it is. Um, that, you know, could be bringing you down. So if it's something like sleep or nutrition or stress causing me to fail, I know that pushing through is almost always going to be more harmful for me in the scope of a training block than just calling it. Um, and there's a lot of merit for mm. me in just like the act of getting on the bike. You know, there's still like merit in that ride, even if I do end up failing and having to bail on intervals. Um, so yeah, if I've done everything right and checked all those boxes to prepare myself for the workout, like fueling and sleeping well and rest and everything, then it might be one of those instances where I should push through, um, and just mm. give her. Yes. That, that, the long-term perspective of the training block is super important. Like, where am I, where is this workout going to put me in three weeks? Like, particularly right now I'm going through sweet spot base high volume. So that's a five week on one week off uh, loading cycle of base training. Right. So that's like, that's, that's tough. And you really have to think week one when you're like, Oh, this is easy. I'm going to give it more gas on this interval than I should. And then you're like, hold on in four weeks. How are you going to feel? You know, like this is going to be really tough. That's it. So that's like a, um, valuable, uh, perspective to keep in mind with this and why it makes sense sometimes to step off the bike. I want to ask you, Ivy, how you deal with the uh, thoughts that come in afterward. Cause they all come in our heads. 
when we when we get off that bike and we've in quotes failed that workout and we stopped that then it becomes really hard for us to manage the psychology a lot of the time as a type a athlete because we feel like we failed we feel like gosh like what am i going to do now so have you found anything to help with coping with those sort of uh self frustrations that we feel uh therapy no <laughs> but uh, <laughs> no but i think that you know like myself five or six years ago like would really beat myself up about that um and that has mm. to do so much with my approach to training and racing now and why i feel like i i know that i'll have so much more longevity in the sport because um i'm much more forgiving and gentle to myself when things don't work out on the bike like when i'm training and you know i do i've I, I can't just like designate time to just training anymore, you know, like with work and like ev- all of our athletes can relate to that. Um, and so having a more whole, uh, life picture as well helps me cope with those failures a little bit better, like to step back and be like, like I've got a lot of other stuff going on and they're good things and it's okay to not mm. be 100% on the bike all the time. Yeah. Keep it in perspective for sure. Uh, Alex, how about you? What do you, do you have rules? I assume that you have numerical rules for something like this. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I take a bit of everybody's approach. Um, I will try to give you a view into my Venn diagram astrology chart, crystal ball. <laughs> <Crystals. over here. laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, there's a lot of factors. So like where you are in the training plan, right? Whether or not it's a key workout. Um, I actually take Pete's approach in terms of how I approach workouts rather than executing only three a week i still ride six days a week but two or three of those are the workouts that i care about so it kind of goes back to the old ideology easy on your easy days hard on your hard days like Mm. if my endurance pace is 10 watts less than it's supposed to be whatever if my sweet spot is 10 watts lower than it's supposed to be then it's something i care about um Mm. and then beyond that like you jonathan said i within sweet spot i have more wiggle room right to hit that energy system whereas vo2 it's very easy to convince yourself, like, I'm only 15 watts off, but it's threshold work. So I think understanding that, um, my general rule of thumb is within 5%, I'm good. Um, that I'll let you into how much of a nerd I am. That comes from power meter error, <laughs> how much I can justify <laughs> that my power meter's lying to me. <laughs> so um, that's kind of my, my line in the sand, I guess. But for example, yesterday I, <laughs> I drove 45 minutes to a really good ride spot, forgot my access battery on my derailleur, so drove back home and motivation was at an all-time low. So the ride felt hard, but I was okay pushing through because mentally I'm like, this is just coming from lack of motivation. Like I don't, today I don't want to turn the pedals. So I was okay pushing through that day knowing that today is going to be a rest day. So it's also like where that workout falls and what the expectation is. Like sometimes coming into an endurance ride, I expect to be tired. I expect it to be kind of a a focus on the power meter all day kind of day. Whereas sometimes you come into an endurance ride at the beginning of a block and it's just like you look down and you're like, oh, I should probably go easier. You know, the RPE Mm -hmm. is completely different. Mm -hmm. But I think going to Ivy's point, if I decide – or the numbers show me that I'm not hitting the workout that day. I've really tried to own decisions, not just within this, but 
across the board. Like if I decide on a quote unquote cheat meal, right. Or I decide to do something that I'm quote unquote, not supposed to do. I own that decision. So if I, if I decide that that workout's not for me, no matter what happens. And I've had times I got home and called my coach and he's like, yeah, you probably should have stuck it out. You know? Mm-hmm. So it's like, those are the worst, but it's like, I made that decision with the information that I had at the time and stressing over it isn't going to change it. It's like, okay, now I'll move forward with the knowledge that I have and make a more informed decision next time. So I think mm-hmm. not beating yourself up is a big part of it. Yeah. The one workout, like even though it's called a key workout, n- not being perfect on that key workout still isn't going to throw everything off. Uh, what will throw everything off is if you get down on yourself and really frustrated and start to tell yourself that you're not the athlete that you are because you are an athlete, you're trying to train, you're doing those things. So you are an athlete, but all those things start to creep into our minds when we have workout failures. Uh, it's yep. really frustrating but there's ways that we can manage that and just understand. I, I really, I really like the decision ownership part. Like you own the decision and then you look at that objectively. So then next time you can make uh, more informed decisions. And then that's just, it just builds on itself. Um, yeah. Training and there's tons of very, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. I was going to say training is all directional, right? It comes back to that consistency piece. Like for Pete, he was finding what made him consistent and that's why he's succeeding with that. It's like find a plan that you can stick to 95 to 99% of the time, right? It's like, if you're not pushing up against those limits, and I think that's why Ivy loves failing workouts is she knows she's pushing your limits. She's, she's right there. Right. And it's like, how do you know where those limits are? Unless you go over them a couple of times. It's like, if you're comfortably completing workouts all the time, then I would challenge you to take a ramp test, right? Like mm-hmm. you kind of have to find where your limits are to really fulfill yourself as an athlete. Yeah. I would, I would say that no, no plan that's pushing an athlete to their potential will be free of failure points at some point. Like it's going to happen. That's, that's part of the training process. It needs to happen, uh, if you're really, uh, moving forward. So yeah, it's, um, and there's so many things like Alex, I like that you mentioned like the different variables that come into, I think you too, Ivy, like if you're checking the boxes for recovery, nutrition, that sort of stuff, it's always really important to consider those when you are facing tough uh, or like a, a tough workout. Like if you're not performing well and you're wondering why first calibrate your power meter, <laughs> and then number two, after calibrate that, it again. Uh, yeah, then calibrate it again until you get repeat <laughs> values. Just like, yeah, inside into my brain, I calibrate until I get a repeat value. And then at that point I'm like, good sound calibration there. We can move forward. So, um, but calibrate your power meter. Then after that, then ask yourself and be like, okay, uh, what was my sleep? Like, what's my nutrition been like? What's that, you know, and then as a result, don't beat yourself up over that. Just use that to set your expectations for what you should be able to do. And then you can once again, learn from it because the next time you're likely going to say, oh, I didn't eat enough or I, I waited way too long for my last meal to this workout. And as a result, I'm feeling super, you know, uh, depleted and, and, and hungry. And as a result, you know, it's, it's tougher. So uh, hopefully that, that answers Tom, your question from all four different perspectives here on what we do on failing and struggling through workouts, uh, rapid fire (laughs) and probably not rapid fire way. Uh, let's get into that. First one's from Rostin long question. We'll try to get, make it a short answer. Uh, it says, I currently don't own a power meter. I've been training with heart rate and RPE. I recently have done some zone two rides and I find it extremely hard to keep it in and keep my heart rate in zone two. What I'm saying is it feels too easy. And I couldn't even imagine trying to do a recovery ride in zone one. So have you, or do you have any experience that with this or 
with this with power outside. Uh, yes, we do. He says, also keep in mind, do I or uh, mind I do everything on my mountain bike, even if that means riding it on the road. It's like a man after our own hearts over here, Alex, you and I uh, riding our mountain bikes on the road all the time too. Uh, and then says, so do I j- uh, just go on with our, or go on RPE and analyze my heart rate after the ride? Or do you think using heart rate to stay within zone two for a zone two workout is something I should do? Um, and then also he says, it would also be interesting to hear what you guys and gals experience on, or what your experience is on heart rate accuracy compared to power. A great podcast, by the way, I was always amazed at how much I learn each week. So Rostin, go to our video that is heart rate versus power. We have that on YouTube. You can look that up. That will cover the, our thoughts on heart rate in general versus power for, for training. Um, but really I think probably the best recommendation here is to use RPE. Um, I, I, I would say, uh, Pete, do you have thoughts on this one? Yeah, I, it's, it's the RPE thing is much more, uh, calibratable than your heart rate. Uh, right. Yeah. Like, yep. as you, if you do the same thing and you're, and you're going through workouts, you learn how much things should hurt you. Mm-hmm. Uh, and your body is really good at figuring that out and kind of honing in on what that means. Um, and so keep practicing with using RPE to, to test what you're doing and seeing how it should feel. Um, and I, I think the adjusting workouts on the fly from heart rate is you're, you're chasing something that's constantly moving and different mm-hmm. most days. Uh, Mm -hmm. it's, it's really difficult to do where if you just stick with RPE and you record heart rate and don't change anything, um, you're going to tune your body and kind of find the right zones yourself. Um, but it takes a little bit of time. And as long as you just, like we talked about earlier, record the heart rate because there's no harm in recording data, um, Mm -hmm. and then start using RPE and see, see how it works. Uh, and you'll get better and then your training will get better and, it will, it'll start the flywheel. Here we go. Yeah, I said, that's it. Use <laughs> RPE, uh, over yes. heart rate for sure. Uh, I, I feel like somebody is like, a, I, I hear a drill going on or something in the background. So I apologize if anybody's hearing that in the podcast, I don't know if it's in our office or what's going on. So, um, <laughs> okay. Vacuum. It's the uh, beauty fan for Pete's hair, you know, like, the, <laughs> um, look, there's yeah, sacrifices we all have to endure here. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's go into Jim's question. He said, you've said that your plans include ramp tests every four to six weeks to update FTP for where you are at. Most of them do. And I'm on the low volume, full distance triathlon plan in the middle of base, and it goes 12 weeks without a ramp test. I know I could just add a ramp test to update FTP if I wanted, but my question is this, is the full distance plan structured in such a way that the later weeks account for some expected improvement in FTP and by reassessing it six weeks, I might make those final six weeks harder than was intended when the plan was designed. Thanks. So Coach Chad can't be here with us today. However, I will read from Chad uh, exactly what he said. He said, yep, this person's got it exactly right. We can reassess or we can escalate the demands of the workouts or we can do both and run the risk of outpacing adaptations by increasing both the relative intensity and the basis for those relations. So this is probably my single favorite reason 
why I'm so excited about things that we are working on. Bam. I'm just going to leave it right there. So, um, uh, if you've listened to Nate on any podcast, uh, you probably know a lot of what we're working on because Nate is leaking it all the time. So, um, <laughs> sorry, Nate's not going to be on the podcast very often, maybe going forward. If he keeps doing that, that's going to be our punishment. We're going to have to stop him. Uh, Tyler says in the spirit of the holidays, what's your best bike related gift you've gotten? Uh, Ivy kick us off. Uh, I got a really good wool base layer like seven or eight years ago. Um, like I, I don't even know what brand it is anymore because like it's been like washed so many times that like any of the branding is gone. Like who knows what it is, <laughs> but yeah, I think those like, as we know, technology and like specs for bike equipment changes so much that like core things that will be good over time are really good gifts to give a cyclist. Ooh, yeah, it's a good one. Uh, Pete, how about you? Uh, Best bike related gift you've gotten for Christmas. I'm sure you and Alex would be proud of me. Uh, I just got a digital PSI reader for my tires. So just that don't I, talk I'm, to no long, I'm no longer <laughs> just eyeballing from six feet away from the 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 needle on my various different pumps that all read differently because of course they do. Uh, now I can actually check. Um, and it is pretty interesting. Uh, riding 21 and a half PSI feels different than riding 23 PSI or, you know, things that my eyes can't pick out when I'm just looking at the needle. So it's, it's been fun and it's cool to kind of have a source of truth for all of my all, all the tires in my garage now have a source of truth, which is insightful for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, good one. Uh, Alex, how about you? Uh, I'll share presents that I've gotten people because my family shies away from buying me anything cycling related. <laughs> <laughs> they say I'm picky or something. Um, yeah. <laughs> this year I gifted a few people ice friction chains, and I like it because it's Ooh. functional, right? Because chains wear out. And two they get to ride a wax chain for a little while. So I was pretty stoked to give, I gave my brother-in-law one and I gave my, uh, Daniel's wife one for her, her new bike. So I was pretty stoked. Free speed. Heck yeah. Yeah. That's a good way to do it. I never get bike stuff for Christmas for the same exact reason. My, my, my wife is like, you are way too picky about everything and you already have everything picked out. So I'm not even going to try. So (laughs) instead I get much, uh, I get very different Christmas gifts for that stuff, but probably the most useful thing and my favorite thing, small thing, but last year I got a, no, the year before last, I got a digital shock pump. Uh, that is, and I'm the person that checks my shock and fork pressure before every single ride. And I would never, ever think of riding my bike without doing that. And I know I'm nerdy and probably don't need to do that. Fork and shock every single time. Shock, I understand. Yeah. And I also, when I do that, I make sure that I try to equalize the positive and negative chambers before I check as well. So yes, I'm a nerd, but having that thing has been so helpful because that's even, uh, in some cases, depending on the bike and depending on how much pressure it has and all that stuff, it can make one PSI can make a very big difference. Uh, so depending on the bike. So, the uh, real question though is do you recheck sag after Christmas? <laughs> this is a good point. I, uh, I actually saw somebody, uh, somebody, one of the pro mountain bikers did that and he was sagging at 40% on his bike instead of, t- <laughs> instead of the 30 that he usually likes to sag at. So <laughs> yes, <laughs> friendly note, check it after the holidays. Sometimes, uh, the cookies end up just needing a little more support really is, is, is the, the real thing there. Um, this one's from Steven. 
Uh, oh no, forgive me from, uh, Wesley says, love the podcast. I have a question about pacing for Leadville. What riding pace would you recommend for, uh, for St. Kevin's Sugarloaf and Columbine tempo or sweet spot? And what are all overall IF should I shoot for? Any advice would be greatly appreciated. Uh, Alex, you've uh, raced Leadville much faster than I have. So what would you say on this? Um, I'd be very impressed if you could do a sweet spot up every time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Please go give it a try and let me know how it goes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, um, not going to work out well. Yeah, for for a long race like that, um, I would, depending on right where your your engine lies, I would shoot probably somewhere between endurance pace and tempo. Um, the first two climbs are shorter. So if people don't know, it's, it's an out and back course and the turnaround point is at the top of Columbine climb, which is about an hour long. Um, maybe two, depending on who you are. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's (laughs) regardless, that's the longest climb of the day. Um, so that one, I would definitely pace yourself at endurance pace. And I think this is where like inside workouts really help because a lot of people haven't pedaled for two hours straight but when you get to a climb like that you're, you're definitely going to be pedaling for two hours straight so um much like any tt right i would start those first few climbs at endurance pace and then if you're coming back and you're hitting the back side of the first two climbs still feeling good then i that's when i would bump it up yeah but it's a long if day. i it's a really long day. You have to pace way more conservatively than you think and way more conservative conservatively than most of the people around you on that first lap, right? Like that's another big thing. When you first go up the first climbs in that race, everyone is going, they feel like they're going conservative. They're not going near conservative enough on a day that long at that elevation. It honestly has to be kind of a boring day. And I know that's a little sad, but that's just the way it has to be. Like you, you have to make it that way. And trust me, it won't feel boring at the end. Like it's yeah. going to feel very difficult and very hard to be able to do that. I'm is... looking at mine right now and I'm going to try to find the IF that I did on that, but I think it was somewhere around 0.79, somewhere around there. Yeah. Let's was see. that adjusted for elevation? Uh, no, that wasn't adjusted for elevation. Um, That's yeah. So yeah, somewhere right around 0.79. So but yeah, it's, it's boring. If I look at it on the climbs, my power is not going higher than when it is on the flats. Like yeah. it's There's just the same strategy to that. Uh, going back to the mountain bike piece, like <laughs> when you're at 10,000 feet, if you spike up anything small, you will pay for it almost immediately. So try to keep the power in check. Even if you can just stand up to make it above, up, up the climb, I think it's, it's best to stick to your power target and, um, make someone else work on the road is my rule of thumb. Hundred percent. Just shake your Eat. head the whole time. Yeah, exactly. Get to the point where you can take in a hundred grams of carbs an hour, and then make sure you take that in, and then pace way more conservatively. Conservative. That's a hard word. I'm going to quit on that word for today. Pace <laughs> better than or pace lower than you think that you should, and as a result, you will have a good day at Leadville. Those are the two biggest things. So, and keep in mind your threshold will drop. So your effective power will go down, which means your effective KJ burn will go down. So it is easier at Leadville to keep up with your expenditure if you can do 100 grams of carbs an hour. Yep, you're just doing less work. You're just not able to do a lot when you're up there. This sounds like my nightmare. Good for you, Wesley. (laughs) (laughs) Yikes. (laughs) 
Eric says, uh, so I know that plan builder is the best option for building a training plan, but should I be planning my race calendar like I would a training plan? Let's say I wanted to peak for a summer crit. Would there be any benefit from racing longer races in the spring and then tapering down to shorter ones as the season progressed? I mean, that would be ideal, right? Like, um, for, for all of us, that'd be sweet, right? Ivy. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, apart from all of the fitness benefits from getting some longer races in early in the season, um, I know for me, there's a huge mental benefit to getting some early season road races in to like shake out those cobwebs of like race nerves and positioning, like if I were to just not race and just like train by myself or just do group rides and then try to jump into a crit, like I'd, I'd be out the back. Like it <laughs> takes a, like there's mental sharpening that you need to like ease yourself into for me, at least apart from the fitness aspect of, mm-hmm. you know, leading into those really high intensity races. Yeah. It just as your training gets more specific as you get closer to your big goal event that you're building toward your races should also get more specific. That's why, You'll see more C priority races in the beginning to B and then to your A. So yeah, absolutely. Plan them out that way. Put them on plan builder. It'll account for all of them. Uh, it's awesome. <clears throat> okay. Steven says, I'm about to plan for Belgian waffle and SBT gravel, steamboat gravel. I can ride inside, but Nordic skiing is super available and easy to access where I live. How do I best build a base for cycling that incorporates lots of classic, or I assume he means Alpine and skate skiing. Uh, so thanks. And he also mentioned, Stephen, that he's 57. Uh, Ivy, you do uh, some, uh, we affectionately call it Nordorking, um, uh, Nordic yeah. skiing of, of northern Montana. <laughs> uh, what are your views on this? I love this. I love this question so much. And I love that you're skiing, Stephen, and like doing other things other than riding. Like, I think it's so important. And I've thought about this a lot too this winter because it's one of my first seasons skate skiing. And like, I really like it. And now I'm like, oh no, like, how do I make this work with training? Because like, I want to just ski all the time because it is such a good workout. Like for anyone that hasn't, um, skate skied for me, it's like VO2 max all the time. Like it's the hardest thing I've ever done for sure. And I like that about it. Um, but I think in terms of working it into your cycling training, like it's kind of the same as any other, like tool that you use outside of cycling, like you can lift and there are a lot of benefits to it, but it doesn't translate directly onto the bike. Um, and for skiing, I know a lot of that has to do with where you are in your ability levels for skiing. Like I can't compare skate skiing for myself to base because like, I'm still like Bambi on ice. Like it's too hard. Like I can't (laughs) go easy on, on the skis. So, um, yeah, I guess that's what I would say is that, um, you know, you should look at it as any other thing that parallels with your training, that it's not the same as bike fitness and bike training, but it is a good tool as but and like mentally good to do stuff that isn't bikes in the winter for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Well said, Ivy. Uh, Patrick, and this will be, I think the last rapid fire one says, what is the difference between base miles and junk miles? Uh, actually, no. Yeah. And this is going to be a blend. We'll blend out from rapid fire on this one. So, uh, what is the difference between base miles and junk miles? Sometimes a workout plan calls for low intensity, but my friend put the term junk miles in my head years ago. And now I feel guilty if I'm not at least in the sweet spot zone. I understand low intensity for recovery, but please help me understand the term junk miles and whether there is such a thing. 
So we actually have discussed like junk miles before on the podcast, but I thought it would be good to get fresh perspectives on this because I think that we all have different opinions on kind of what that means, or I guess uh, what it means for each of us. Um, Alex, what, what say you, how do you define junk miles? Yeah, we were talking about this before. I, I realized I struggle with the moniker junk miles. Um, it has a very negative connotation to it, but in my mind, it's always been anything without a purpose or structure. Like if you're going out just to ride your bike, but the reason I don't like calling that junk miles is like a soul ride or something. You just want to go out and ride your bike. Doesn't have to be junk, right? Like it may have no physical benefit, but the mental benefit is there. Um, I think to answer Patrick's question, the difference between junk miles and base miles to me is junk miles have no target or goal associated to them on the physical side of things, but base miles will be a lot of miles at a prescribed wattage or RPE. And so they're, they're building the base right for your season. Whereas if you went out and did the same number of hours with no structure, you wouldn't build as good of a base. You may be out of that zone more often. Mm. Pete, uh, how about the, the awesome points on that, Alex? Uh, Pete, how about you? Uh, as as we now know from my psychology earlier, that I don't like failing workouts. So anything that compromises my workouts in any way, shape, or form, I feel like that is uh, negatively impacting me. But at the same time, I leave a little wiggle room in my training, and I do a lot of coffee rides and things that could be traditionally thought of as junk miles because mm -hmm. um there's something i'd like to do i'll actually enjoy just pedaling my bike without purpose sometimes and going to go drink a coffee and sit around and um and i like mountain biking and i like not having to um whoa whoa whoa, kind whoa. Of, you put mountain biking whoa, whoa. and not purpose in the same sentence <laughs> <laughs> uh, i don't <laughs> i object <laughs> uh I, we, like John and I would shuttle occasionally, and I mm -hmm. would say that that, unless I crashed, it's probably not going to negatively impact my training. And so mm -hmm. that's okay. I'm not, I'm not compromising anything that I'm really looking forward to and spending a lot of time and energy and structure to doing. Um, but I, going out for the sole purpose of junk miling is not something I would, I could do, uh. It, mm -hmm. it's not, it's not a real thing, right? Just going out to pedal, um, without e either, I guess we'll talk about it. It's you're, you're riding for mental, uh, recovery or mental energy or enlightenment, um, which is much different than junk miles. And that's something it sounds like we all do. Um, but for me, if I'm like, I don't chase Strava comms because that would negatively impact my, my training over the course of the week. And that, mm -hmm. that to me is more of a junk mile ride than riding to the coffee shop or going shuttling. Um, so that's mm -hmm. how I kind of differ them for me. How about you, Ivy? Uh, I'll disagree with Pete again. Like, Pete, we're going to fight. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I don't think there's any such thing as junk miles. Like, my approach is that, like, there's your structured training and then there's other like time on the bike mm. that serves its purpose, regardless of whether it's structured or not. Like even mm. if you um, just like have finished your training and want to go like do a few laps on the pump track, like I would never consider mm. that junk miles because I think that there's merit to um, 
you know, any of your time on the bike. Uh, so I'm trying yeah, can't be uh, junk miles. No, it's actually there's impossible. no way. Physically impossible. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I agree with that one. That it's like if it were a video a game. If it were a video game, there'd be like some sort of like beam going up from pump tracks, and it's like impossible if you enter that beam to have junk miles <laughs> exist. Um, I, I I agree with I think I agree with all this, and the one thing that I would add, like my perspective is, I feel like so I I need soul rides every once in a while. I just need to go out and ride my bike, uh, whether that's shuttling with Pete. We go to the bike park or something, or I, I don't know, like I, I need those. I need just a long road ride sometimes. I, I, you know, I, I need those things. And those are accomplishing an emotional purpose for me and making me a more healthy person and better athlete. So uh, complete agreeance here. However, I have absolutely fallen into the trap of then convincing myself that those are productive for training purposes and I think that there's a danger that you can run when you start calling and I'll just separate it to training and riding. When you start conflating riding with training and training with riding. And the reason that that becomes problematic is because training has a specific intention to achieve a specific outcome. And, and I'm talking like a training outcome. And when you start telling yourself that your riding is doing that as well, your results become less precise and then frustration ensues later on because you're wondering why you're not doing it. And if you look back, you probably sacrifice consistency with training for riding. So I try to be very specific. Like, uh, my wife will even ask me, are you training today or are you riding? Like she knows that there's like a marked difference between the two. Right. And like, no, today I'm training or today I'm riding. And if I keep those things really compartmentalized and separate, they're both very healthy for me. It's when I get them confused when it becomes less healthy. Um, and so that's, that's kind of how I view that. So junk miles can absolutely exist and junk miles. I'm saying whatever you want to term them, they can absolutely exist and be a healthy part of an athlete's program, uh, depending on what they have going on, uh, where it only becomes tricky is when you start to convince yourself that that is somehow accomplishing the purposes that you want to accomplish with something else. Um, so yeah, uh, more pump track time, I think is the main takeaway from all this. We just need to ride more pump tracks. Everybody needs uh, a backyard pump track. Yeah. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Obviously Always. we're landscaping our backyard and we're like halfway through the whole thing, long process. And I just keep thinking every day I look at it. I'm just like, I'm just making mistakes cause there's no pump track back there. So, but we haven't put in the grass yet and there's irrigation in there. So who's to say the irrigation couldn't exist for a pump track instead of grass? You know, who knows? Um, there's still hope. <laughs> there's still hope. I don't think that's going to happen. Though. <laughs> okay. Uh, this one is from, and I have no clue how to say this name, so I apologize, but Theophile. I hope I said that correctly. Um, it says, hey, everyone, thank you for all the quality content you're making and following my first serious training plan. And with the help of your advice, I'm feeling a huge improvement in my cycling fitness. Way to go. Uh, he says, I started feeling my training sessions with natural foods like dates and bananas instead of gels and bars for a few weeks now. I feel great, but I wonder if you would recommend it. Do you have any information on how to train on natural food and how to find the right balance and in intake? Uh, big cheers from France. So first of all, a couple episodes or three or four episodes ago, we had Pete on and we talked all about um, natural, using natural foods, kind of like alternatives, natural alternatives. However, we didn't talk about dates and bananas, which are the most common ones that we hear about from people. We didn't talk about them specifically being like, a, like what are the pros and cons of them? 
Um, so, uh, Pete, since you, indeed, this was your focus of, of study all through college and everything else, I figure this could be a, a good one for you to kick off. Yeah, uh, and, and this one is a good one. Um, I, I'm sure all of us have experimented with natural foods and ride foods and things like that. Um, and uh, I'm one of the things that this makes me excited for is I think our fueling, if we're our, our, uh, pushing fueling your workouts makes your life better, is working. Um, mm-hmm. And that should be uh, repeated again here. I promise it, whether you're eating bike food or dates and bananas for your rides, your rides will be better. Um, so I think that's, that's an important one to talk about. Um, and Theo is doing a good job of that. Uh, Mm -hmm. so one of the things that that's interesting about ride food versus, um, natural foods is, uh, ride food has been specifically designed for one purpose and that is to be eaten on a bicycle and to fuel your workouts. So, um, no matter what, uh, at a, at a very basic level from a nutritional standpoint, one is going to be better at a specific thing than another one. Um, and so I think we can't, it's not, Ooh, <laughs> it's not bananas to bananas guys. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's not bananas to bananas. Uh, but the, uh, the natural dates and bananas do a really good job of mimicking probably the best we have of mimicking some of the things we're looking for in other kind of more ride specific foods. Um, so from a sugar standpoint, which is really the easiest thing to kind of pull apart out of this, um, and we got to preface, bananas ripen over time, dates ripen over time. They're all mm. different. They're different sizes. They're different colors. There's different starch contents. Um, so we're really making this as basic as possible. Um, and all gels are different. All blocks are different. So we're really trying to just way uh phrase this in a way you can think about eating a banana the same way you would eat some bike food or eating a date the same way you could eat, eat some bike food and that way at least you have something when you're reaching in the cabinet and you're like I'm grabbing four dates for my ride because the sugar content is roughly 90% in a date and each date is equal to one gel or three blocks and that's mm-hmm. kind of the way that you should think about it is in a carbohydrate fueling strategy you're going to need one, two, or three dates per hour to kind of fuel you on your ride, or you're going to need one or two bananas. Um, but one of the things that's really different is the, the mass of the food and kind of the extra things you get with dates and bananas. Um, bananas are, so one banana is the, roughly the same as a gel and size comparison wise, a medium banana versus a gel is a big difference. If you have enough bananas in your pocket, to fuel yourself for a two or three hour ride, you're going to have a lot of bananas in your pocket. Um, and <laughs> so bananas are voluminous. Like you can't, they're if voluminous. You carry, yes. <laughs> that replaces spots. You can carry other things. So <laughs> correct. And so one of the things is it's much better than nothing. I, I will, I will definitely agree that, um, always fueling is way more important um, and then everybody is different on kind of what their gut can handle and the fiber and the extra mm-hmm. uh, macronutrients and micronutrients that come with both of these um, are happier with some people's gut and less happy with other people's gut. And it's something you can train over time. So as people who work on fueling, if you're fueling pretty much solely with dates or bananas, your stomach is going to get better at 
fueling with that strategy. Um, it will always never quite be as easy on your body as kind of bicycle food. So mm-hmm. let's call it um, something that works really well, especially in a bind. Or if you if you don't like kind of the to the ethos of bicycle food and you want to stick more towards natural food, you'll get more micronutrients and macronutrients um, going kind of the natural route. But if you're really um, if you're really going for direct improve like performance improvement, you'll get slightly more out of bicycle food, which is kind of something you should keep in mind. So if you're going to race with bicycle food, but you're going to eat natural food while you're tra- training, you should kind of blend them more often. If you're doing really hard workouts, you should eat bicycle food so that it more closely mimics your races. Um, one of the last things is it's always intensity dependent. So the closer you are to your ceiling, the less leeway you have to play with stuff that isn't quite in line. So if you're doing some of the hardest workouts or hardest races, your body is just less capable at that point of dealing with more, um, all the other things that come with the natural foods. And that's generally when people have kind of GI distress in any way, shape and form is because the intensity is pretty high and they're trying to eat something that requires a little more energy from your stomach. Um, and so it's something you can feel out and everybody's different. Start with like endurance rides and start fueling with bananas or dates and then kind of pick out what works for you. Um, and depending on the date and depending on the banana, you can kind of start measuring out your carbohydrates and start pushing that up. And it's something you can test. Um, so it's, they're all great. Um, and I, I applaud everybody who's fueling their workouts in any way, shape or form, which is the most important thing. Um, if you are really focused on performance, the highest level, you do have to decide whether it's worth it to kind of have bicycle specific food and when to train your body to also deal with that. Um, in another aspect of, uh, like cycling yeah. training is just putting food in your, in your mouth and eating it while going at a really, really high effort yeah. level. And you can go back to episode 289 where we discussed like, uh, different alternatives to ride food. Cause it can be so expensive. Like <clears throat> if you start to actually get the stuff that is the, like, you know, two to one glucose to fructose ratios, that's really like distilled down to just be exactly what you need and nothing else. Ironically, this more simple, the product, the more expensive it seems to be. So, uh, but there are tons of ways that you can engineer around that. You can buy your own maltodextrin and fructose and you can, you know, buy whatever else you need to be able to make that work in bulk and it can save you a lot of money. So Alex, I was just going to add, I kind of wanted to back up and like, I feel like you got to identify why you want to fuel with natural foods, right? Like you touched on Jonathan, it's going to be cost could be one thing, right? Like you're already at the grocery store. The bananas are 26 cents a banana or whatever it is like cost. It could also be to Pete's point, like you want more micronutrients or you're, you know, you're not a huge fan of just this lava of sugar kind of deal (laughs) going on. Um, So kind of weighing that out with the performance you want to achieve. I like Pete's approach of, you know, use those bananas in those dates on endurance rides and recovery. And then those intense rides, I would definitely encourage you to try gels and drink mix. I'm not going to say everybody's going to feel better. I mean, science would say that's true. But if, if you can fuel those on dates and bananas and you prefer to, again, fueling is better than nothing. But I also think if the goal is micronutrients, that you can plan those meals around it. 
to achieve that goal as well while still fueling with sugar on the bike. I personally don't train with anything but sports food. Like I use gels, I use blocks, I use drink mix, and I've been pushing up to get to that 100 grams of carbs an hour, and each season you have to retrain it. But the way I structure my day is like those, when I wake up, those one or two meals before the workout are pretty simple and filled with sugar and what I need for the workout. And then during the workout, I'm having the gels, blocks, and everything else. And then afterwards, that post-ride meal and dinner are really where I focus on the mixture of veggies, the micronutrients. Because if you're doing that big workout, you have enough calories throughout the day to fill those micronutrient holes after the workout for me. Mm-hmm. So, so if the goal, right, is that you feel like it's a healthier option and, and you're scared to have those ride fuel because you're going to miss out on those micronutrients, I encourage you to try to look to add them at that post-ride meal or dinner. Mm-hmm. Or you can get them at the coffee stop on your soul ride. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. You can just drop some spinach in that coffee. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the, the, the one the one thing I was going to mention for me personally that works really well is I'll eat a banana while I'm getting dressed for my ride. And that mm-hmm. seems to be a pretty good time to eat a banana and doesn't negatively impact anything. And then I enjoy dates more as my pop in my mouth, get some quick carbohydrates when I get home from my ride while I'm making my protein shake to get some extra refueling thing. And I, I depending on how long my rides are, most of them aren't that long because who needs to ride more than 90 minutes? Um, <laughs> but uh, if you just like Alex said, if you're properly fueling throughout the day, um, you'll be surprised at how well your body copes with intensity, um, with different types of food, um, based on the breakfast and lunch or, you know, two hours and five hours before your ride start, make sure you're looking at the, that window of time too, because that's also going to impact how your body deals with the on ride food, um, whether that's natural or bike food. So it's kind of a, a whole picture you have to look at. Um, when you're, when you're thinking about these things, um, because if you eat a huge, massive kind of either healthy or unhealthy breakfast, that's not well suited towards a three hour intense ride. Um, it doesn't really matter what ride food you're eating. Your stomach is going to be upset either way. Um, Mm. so Mm -hmm. make sure to kind of count back from your ride and find what works for you as far as kind of probably a carbohydrate heavy lunch or breakfast a couple hours before your ride and tune your body so that you know that you eat three hours before or two and a half hours before or 90 minutes before and everybody's slightly different and it's different depending on the meal. And that will in turn impact how you're feeling when you're eating your bananas or your gels. Mm. Before we move on. Oh, sorry, Alex, go ahead. I was going to take the opportunity to plug one of my favorite trainer road features that it calculates how many KJs you're going to burn. So if you go into the workout, it'll tell you based on your power targets and you can work backwards from that. I did a, yeah. I, I probably should have pinned it, but I did a story a while back on Instagram that showed like I have this many burn and, and kind of how I approach that. I'll see if I can find it and bring it back to the highlight reel. Sweet. Yeah. Give uh, Alex Wilde a follow on Instagram. Uh, if you search him, you'll find him uh, that way. It'll be an easy way to do it. Um, uh, while we're, before we move on to Jed's question, the next one about weight goals and performance goals, we have to address this since we're talking about bananas because these are useful, very useful and important questions. Would you rather eat a green banana or a freckled banana? Like if you had to, not a perfectly ripe one, green or freckled, because I've found that this is like a a, a harsh division in this world right now. So 
I, I'm green. If it has freckles, I can't even touch them. I can't, if I smell them, it's like it's like revolting to me. So. You can send them to Ivy to make into bread. Oh my gosh! <laughs> <Unbelievable>. <laughs> uh, we were just I'm, talking about Ivy's banana bread before this, so. Yeah, for context, I I prefer green bananas, and so naturally, when there's like one freckle, I'm like, well, it's dead to me now, so I just have to wait until it's like completely brown and make banana bread, uh, and then I make banana bread, and I'm just I live alone, and it's just me, so then I end up eating banana bread consecutively for like a couple weeks, and I hate it. Like it's it's ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, to be clear, that wasn't a sexist joke. Anyway, we were talking about banana bread. I promise. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so Ivy's a green banana person with me. This is exciting. Pete, you. I'm I'm a freckled banana for sure. Green oh. bananas have like Ugh. that weird starchy like coating in your mouth. Oh. <laughs> but here's the here's the worst one. Do you freeze bananas with peels on or peels off? And when you're peeling a frozen banana that's brown and it's like slippery in your hand, is does that give you the heebie jeebies? Yes, it gives me the heebie jeebies <laughs> entirely. Yeah, yeah, I can't handle it. We've got a stalemate here. If you're watching in the YouTube comments, let us know if you're <laughs> solving important problems. Green banana or freckled banana person so we can break this tie here. Uh, man, we need to do that. Um, I thought Pete and I were going to agree on something, and then he talked about freezing bananas. <laughs> yeah, for banana bread, when you save them for later. That's sort of a thing. For yeah. smoothies, for protein smoothies. Yeah, smoothies. Yep. As soon as they become not green, then you just throw them in the freezer. That's what I do. So, um, okay. As soon as they're yes. yellow and ready to eat. <laughs> yes, exactly right. Then they go in the freezer. <laughs> okay. Uh, Jed's question says, hello, trainer road team. I discovered the podcast and the forum this year, and I think I've all but caught up completely on the podcast. Thanks to this pandemic and long walks and a few long drives this year, five stars all the way. Thanks, Jed. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening, especially to all those episodes. I hope it's uh, given you tons of information and, and helped you make, make you faster. He says, I've read The Endurance Diet by Matt Fitzgerald, a book that we've talked about pretty regularly and recommended. Uh, he says, and several other, several other books, but I still can't seem to find something that works to get me where I want. I'm currently 210 pounds, down from 320 in a year and a half. So this... Jed has lost 110 pounds. That is so that's impressive. Huge, um, good job. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Jed amazing. says, Jed says, I want to be below 200 pounds. Most of all that weight was lost off the bike following a keto <laughs> diet and fasting. But when I started cycling more seriously, I realized the need for carbs really quick. And have since started, started eating more carbs daily from whole foods and keeping the simple sugars to the bike and hitting that 60 to 90 grams per hour during the workouts. My current FTP is about 330, up from 275 since starting in August, and I think 350 is very achievable by this summer. I'm struggling with the weight loss and have stalled out entirely here since I have started hitting those carbs a lot harder. My RPE and recovery is a lot better with the carbs, but my weight but my weight is not moving. How should I make the cuts in order to drop that 10 to 15 pounds and not kill my FTP? It's so tempting to just not eat on the bike, but I know that is probably not the best option. But with the weight loss goals, is taking in the 90 grams per hour conducive to the weight loss goal? Currently, just starting back to sweet spot basement volume with all five days in a row, leaving my weekends open for some fun rides as the weather allows. Uh, so, Jed, kudos, first of all. It was super impressive. Uh, Jesse 
Fortson, who was actually in the planning meeting for this podcast, as he usually is one of our great copywriters and also one of the guests on our Successful Athletes podcast, uh, shared a lot of his thoughts on this because he was in a similar situation uh, in the sense that he uh, lost a lot of weight and he finds himself in the same situation as you in the sense that he feels like he has those, and I can say this in quotes, the last few pounds. And that's a really common thing for even uh, somebody that you may look at and you may think, oh, wow, that person's really, really skinny, really fit. Uh, that last few pounds thing is common across the board for a lot of people. Um, but first things first, I just want to once again say, well done. Uh, that sort of sacrifice and hard work is not known by many people in this world, a very small percentage to be able to do what you've done. Um, and I want to clarify something on the weight loss stance because, uh, like listening back to a lot of like the discussions that we've had, I I want to make it clear that we don't, um, if you want to lose weight to put yourself in a more healthy position in life, that is awesome. And, and that is something that you should pursue. And we want to support you in that like that. That's, that's fantastic. On the other side of things, we get a lot of athletes that are like panicking about two to three extra pounds. And you can actually look at the cost of getting faster thing that we just posted on our Instagram this week, where we show the impact up Alpe d'Huez of losing two pounds versus adding 10 watts to your FTP. And it's not even remotely close. You add 10 watts to your FTP and you are so much faster up that climb than dropping two pounds. So there's that last couple pounds thing that a lot of athletes are sacrificing the quality of their workouts and sacrificing the quality of their life, even in their health to try to lose those extra two pounds when it's really like not, it's not what they should be chasing. And it actually isn't health centric. It actually is driving you further away from health. So there's, there's weight loss goals that drive you closer toward health. Then there's weight loss goals that drive you further away from health as well. So I just kind of wanted to like clarify our stance on that. Cause we've been I've, uh, criticized. I've seen even on the forum of people saying like, you guys are like against weight loss and you're trying to make everybody fat with making them eat all these carbs. And that's not the goal. Uh, our goal is to make you healthier athletes that also can perform better. You're getting faster. That's the, that's the focus. So, um, with that said, um, Jesse mentioned that the mental component of losing these last few pounds is extremely tough. You've done all this work. In some sense, it's kind of like a school's out for summer vibe and how hard it is on that last day of summer to be productive, right? Uh, or last day of school to be productive before summer. But then there's also the side of things where those last few pounds in many cases to lose have to be done in a different way than what you've done. Um, it, it's it's really, it, it is tricky and it's tough to be able to, to go after that. But I think maybe the best spot to start is to analyze your own motives and why you want to lose those last few pounds. Um, we kind of came up with some reasons for this. Ivy, do you want to jump in on the first one? And cause this one's kind of complex This can be both. Ooh, we lost Alex. Hopefully he comes back here soon. Um, but Ivy, do you want to jump in and kind of, um, explain on one of the points that we brought up as far as a motive for those last few pounds? Yeah, totally. Um, yeah. Understanding the motive of why Jed wants to lose these last few pounds is important because one of them might be appearance. And, you know, in terms of body positivity, it's important to not discredit when folks are motivated to look a way that makes them feel good. You know, there's totally merit in wanting to like look and feel a way that makes you feel good about yourself. Like that's totally a good thing. But 
the way in which it's harmful is if for appearance, if you're trying to lose those last few pounds because you have this ideal image of what a cyclist should look like. Um, and that's where it can be harmful, especially when you're um, potentially, you know, hurting your performance in order to get there because you think that an ideal cyclist looks this way. And that's one of the things that's so cool about cycling is that like, we're all different shapes and sizes. And, you know, there are really successful elite athletes that look super different, even in terms of like body fat percentage. So Jed, it's okay to like, want to just like, look a way that makes you feel good. Um, but just make sure that you're not sacrificing anything in terms of your health in order to get there. Yeah. And that kind of ties into like basing it on other people that can be really tricky. Right. Uh, and if you look in any field of cycling, there's a wide range of body types at the absolute tip of the spear of the sport and people that look very different, people that look very lean, people that don't look lean, people that look very muscular, people that don't look muscular, people that have the ectodorf, mesodorf, whatever else, like the body types vary and they are not a predictor of your performance potential. Um, so, so yeah, if it's based on other people, then that's likely not that's not going to be true to yourself and true to where you need to be. Another one too, is like a past weight benchmark. Pete, you and I have talked about this before where it's like, well, I remember that one year when I weighed, you know, I didn't weigh much at all. And yeah, I was climbing great that year, but as years progress, you change as a person that can be really tough, right? <laughs> yeah. I've, I've weighed a lot of different weights in my career <laughs> and in my history. And I've been relatively successful at all of them, but my strengths and weaknesses are different. Um, and I think aligning with aligning your goals with what you um, can do rather than what you should weigh is much more important. Um, and that's, I've, I've had the same problem where I've had a specific number in mind that I think is going to be very beneficial and it's you kind of lock in and fixate and mm -hmm. if your body is much better at telling you how much you should weigh if you're eating in a healthy way and fueling and doing the work as prescribed your body will kind of reach a homeostasis that is probably more beneficial and uh, has greater longevity in the season and in the sport and in your life um kind of as you fly closer to the sun everything in your life is harder. So you have to weigh that into when you're thinking about if, you, if, if a number on a scale is very important to you, that's great. And as long as that kind of aligns with what you're doing uh, to get there and your goals, then that's great. Um, but if you if it just sort of floats in the ethos because that's what you think should be, then you have to kind of go back and make sure that the things you're doing are are getting you there and that they align with what you should be doing and what your body is kind of capable of doing, um, mm. which is really hard. And it's, it almost helps to have someone else there with you to talk about it, especially someone, uh, or multiple people, right? Like that have, um, are probably experienced in that realm because it's really easy to put your blinders on and, and just make decisions for yourself. Um, yeah. I think we all, we all know that one. Right. So I, I, uh, reiterating on this, analyze why your goals are your goals. Like, is your goal to be 200? Cause it's a round number. That's like a really common thing. Like we set a number and we, we push for that number, but it, you know, is that really like, what's the motive behind that? And can you recalibrate or is that indeed what you want to do?
It's, it's, you know, it, it all depends. I think that what Pete said, a really important point is instead of going through and, and having this approach of basically saying like, well, what I want to do is I want to make myself weigh something. And if I weigh that, then at that point, then I'll be able to perform like I want to instead start performing like you want to now. And what I mean with that is go through and, and try to fuel more work. And you're doing great in this regard, Jed, with, with trying to fuel the work. If you fuel your body to be able to do more and more and more and more work, you're going to be burning more calories. Uh, you're also going to be training your body to be more capable and powerful, which is just cool. Like, that's awesome. That's really the goal behind all of this. And as you do that, like Pete said, your body reaches this level of stasis, and that's going to look different for every person. But that's why we recommend so many cases that people fuel their workouts and just focus on doing more work rather than starving yourself. Because the downsides of fueling your workouts appropriately and doing more work, they're very few. I can't think of any, like that really, because it doesn't make you fat. That's like a big assumption. And we should probably address that part right now. Um, and Alex, you're back with us. Good to have you, by the way. Um, Sorry about that. <laughs> But we should, and, and our names are all switched around. Uh, Al- Ivy and Alex are now Alex and Ivy. It's switched. Yes. So. I'm going to get more <laughs> followers for this now. No, just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> so produce, producer Aaron's working in the background to be able to switch it all around. So thanks, Aaron, for for dealing with the craziness there of, of, of tech. Um, um, but yeah, <laughs> but with this, I want to, uh, Alex... Can you talk a, a bit about fueling workouts? Because there's this assumption that if I take in 90 grams of carbs an hour, I'm making myself fat because I'm taking in that much sugar during that. But can you kind of break down what that actually means in terms of the numbers and explain that? Yeah. I mean, even if you're fueling at 90 to 100 grams of carbs per hour, you are getting 360 to 400 calories an hour. And that would be... I might be a little off on this, but it'd be like riding at 140 watts for an hour. You would be fueling at 100%. So for, I'd say, 90% of the workouts, you'll be not being able to fully top yourself up. So you will always come out of that workout in a calorie deficit. So thinking that fueling the work will make you fat is almost impossible because you'll be burning more than you're taking in, even at that maximum intake. So Mm -hmm. I think that misconception just comes from, I think the fact that it's just sugars and carbs. And and I think society has this, this negative thing around both carbs and sugar. Um, But if you use it for what its purpose is and take it in on the bike, that's the best time you can take it in. It's like, if you're taking in that same gel right before you go to bed, then it's like, that's when you run into issues because your body can't do anything with it. But if you're taking it in right when you're on the bike, the endurance, from my understanding, Pete can jump in if I say anything bad here, but <laughs> from, I work with a dietitian and when you're on the bike, you block the insulin response to sugar while you're in an endurance state. So you're not having that same response to sugar. You usually do. Your body is then using it to fuel the work and you're coming out of it. Like I said, in a calorie deficit. So it's the best thing you can do because the more work you do, the more calories you burn but you're not going to be able to go above 90 to hundred grams an hour. So that just gives you more room to eat for lunch and dinner. So what you're doing is, is setting a healthy routine for your body that it knows 
I'm working out, I'm getting these sugars, and then I'm replacing this after in these meals. And honestly, the reason that I love having KJs up on my screen is it's like a, it's a high, a high score. You know, it's like, mm-hmm. oh, sweet. Like now I get this and that, like, like I think of all the foods that I can eat with that, that extra calories. And if I didn't ride, then I feel like I'd be so stressed about eating in my mind more so than in this situation. Like it's, I struggle with it, right? Cause it's, we're telling people to fuel the work and we're getting back like that's unhealthy, but I, it, I don't see it as unhealthy in any way. Mm-hmm. And, and specifically to Jet, I don't know if this was covered while I was gone, but he did all his weight loss off the bike. So that weight gain when he got on the bike, I would be 90% sure in saying that that's you gaining muscle and that's probably why your weight came up. So just, just be aware of, of body composition. And again, to Jonathan's mm-hmm. point, anybody who wants to have this weight loss journey, like more power to you. I never want to say that weight loss is bad, but I personally have fought with that like last two kilos, like sentiment. Um, I've always thought that 65 kilos was like the perfect weight for me. And I'm six foot tall. So a lot of you can probably figure out how unhealthy that is just at face value. Um, mm-hmm. But this last year with COVID and everything, I didn't have any races. So I kind of just focused on the work. I didn't weigh myself. I just fueled the work and focused on, on having more power. And I ended up being 68 to 70 kilos. And I did a climb up here, old La Honda. And I went 41 seconds faster than I did when I was at my perfect weight of 65 kilos. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it just shows like, that's a good example of that. When you fuel the body to do more work, you can perform better. And then on top of that too, like there's something to, to keep in mind there, there's a lot of myth and actually everyone should follow Tim Podlogar or Podlogar, P-O-D-L-O-G-A-R on Instagram. He's a, a very fast cyclist himself and he's an upcoming guest uh, or a guest that will be on our upcoming podcast, the science of getting faster podcast, which is getting closer to being published by the way. Um, so, and he, he's actually published on this multiple times. There's this theory that like, as soon as you take in carbs, that it's a light switch and suddenly you flipped it off and you cannot burn fat anymore. And, and that's, that's disputed, especially within an athletic context. But if you're really, if your goal is fat burn, right? Because you don't want to burn muscle. You don't want to do that. That's helpful. That helps you push your pedals and makes you faster. If you do want to burn fat, uh, really the most sustainable and great way about it is if you can train your body to do more work constantly, uh, it's outside of the workout times, your body then gets into the point where it ends up being more efficient at, at burning resources that it has on board. Uh, and then as a result, the, the times outside of your workout, you're allowing your body to be able to make itself more optimized. So as you do more work, you'll find that. And I find that every year, like a lot of the question is people say, should I try to lose weight right now in the base phase and then try to like train more and focus. And instead it's no, just fuel your work. And as you do that, it'll be gradual, but you'll notice that your body actually becomes what it needs to be for what you're demanding of it. So they don't have to be at odds with each other, this power goal and this weight goal. Instead, if you just focus on fueling the work, and then if you focus on eating whole nutritious foods, uh, making sure that you're getting in the you know high quality foods whenever you can, uh, when you're not on the bike and that sort of a thing, you're going to be in a good spot, a healthy spot. So hopefully you don't feel frustrated and feel like they're at odds with each other. I promise you they can work together if you put performance first or performance and health first. Um, so yeah, that, that's that covered. We did, we did 13 questions today. Everybody, we covered a lot. Look at us. 
U23, right? U23 team just knocking it out of the park over here. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks everybody for joining us on the podcast today. Uh, just to run through a couple of things, go to trainerroad.com, use plan builder and build out a season before you even try signing up with trainer road and check out what your training would look like. It's a ton of fun to do it and send your friends there. And if they get fast, it's going to motivate you to get fast. And then the world will get faster. And then we accomplish our purpose of making the world a faster place. So, uh, do that. And also follow us on Instagram, uh, trainer road. We're posting incredible content on there all the time. Go to the trainer road blog, successful athletes podcast. Uh, we'd love it if you consumed all that stuff. Cause we know it's going to make you faster and tons of great people here at trainer road work on all of it. So with that said, thanks everybody for tuning in and we'll talk to you next week. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Hey.